0: Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to welcome to the show, in studio, Douglas Murray. Uh, If you haven't read him, you're going to want to. If you want to be smart, you want to read Douglas Murray. Uh, What can I tell you about him? Best-selling author, journalist, senior fellow at the National Review Institute. His most recent book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender race and identity we're going to talk about all of those things with douglas but first for those of you that might not know him and we'll talk about why he's in town but for those of you that might not know him douglas for every first time guest i always ask the same question and it's tell us a little bit about yourself a little autobiography however you want to pitch it and uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing
1: sure well, first of all it's a great pleasure to be with you thank and your you. listeners thank, thank you, you so much for asking me you as you can probably tell from my accent is a slight giveaway <laughs> i'm uh, from the uk i'm from britain uh, born and brought up in London, and I've uh, been a writer all my life. Uh, I write non-fiction uh, books, um, articles, journalism. Uh, I've traveled all over the world writing about all sorts of issues around the world, from the Far East to the Middle East and Africa, all across Europe and, uh, of course, America. And uh, in recent years, I've focused on what I regard as being hot-button issues. Things I, I'm quite often attracted to or at least... I'm all the time attracted to tricky issues, difficult questions, things that we t- tend to sort of try to skip over. Uh, my 2017 book, The Strange Death of Europe, yeah. was about uh, immigration, and it really was about immigration as a whole around the world, but uh, it focused on the uh, the question in Europe. But many Americans said at the time, this is really about us, isn't it, as well? I said, of course, uh, all these issues are connected. So that, that's what I do. I've been, I'm lucky enough to have been a writer all my life, which means I can... I can uh, say what I think, and um, I, um, I think in the, the world we're currently in, that's a luxury not everyone has. So I think there's a sort of responsibility for those of us who do actually have that luxury. Do
0: you find well? Let me start this way with with no presumptions, because sometimes conservative journals print people who don't call themselves conservatives. Would you identify yourself as a conservative thinker? So that's that that that's the question. Do you find in Europe, or at least the things that you found, what was your word, tricky issues that? Um, Matter to the conservative movements or the conservative mindset of Europe or even just Great Britain are the same issues? No, no, okay. they're not.
1: They're, they're, Aside from immigration, maybe they similar issues. But I mean, something I've said, I, I, I'm always wary of labels these days because yeah. of the, the because because we're all we're also wary about losing people we could speak to. Yeah. You know, it's a great sadness, isn't it, in our era that, that sometimes some people, if you say conservative, other people just turn off. Yep. Some people equally might say, you know, I'm a leftist or a liberal and other people will turn off. And it's sad because there's, we've all got things to learn from each other. And we've got to make sure we don't get siloed and sort of stuck and only speaking to ourselves. And so in a way, there's a good reason to sort of fear labels at the moment or at least sort of try to reject them. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, labels are necessary. And I'm certainly more of a conservative than I am a leftist. Um, but, but yes, uh, uh, one of the great issues of, that's always been uh, perplexing uh, in, uh, for many people is why do the left have pretty much the same demands everywhere? And it's a very interesting question because if you go almost anywhere around the world, the left is asking for the same set of things, often in lockstep, whereas the right is asking for different things. And there's a reason for that. Uh, conservatives, by their nature, want to conserve. And every society is conserving something different. You know, a conservative in America, indeed even a conservative in Arizona, is conserving something different from a conservative in Sweden. Conservative in South Korea. Conservative in any other place in the world. And that always makes conservatism slightly harder to explain when you're in different places because... It's just the nature of things that, you know, um, we will be conserving things in Britain that are, that are very similar to what you're conserving in America. But they're subtly different. We, we, we of course, have a, have a monarchy. We notice now that you don't. Uh, <laughs> just now since recent development. Since, yeah, recent development. <laughs> uh, we, we don't have a, a constitution. You do. We don't have founding fathers. You do. Uh, that means, of course, British conservatives and American conservatives are going to be conserving slightly different things. That doesn't mean that anything is better or worse. It just means it's different. On
0: on on the issues that we might have in common um, as conservatives, not as countries, because I think that's that's its own separate thing. In fact, I'm going to guess that the censorship that might take place in Great Britain over some issues and the censorship that we face here in America might actually be directed at some of the same things, too typically conservative. So things you have written about, immigration issues, the issue of radical Islam, anything else we would have. What about free speech? Is free speech an issue? I mean, there's another interesting distinction things we have. You don't. You were saying uh, we don't have defamation suits the way you do. Yes, I, know. I, I,
1: I, I defame people to my heart. Yes. To yeah. I really right. love seizing. So them long
0: them. as you're famous. yes.
1: So <laughs> long as you're, yes. Right. No, um, of course, I mean, we, we in Britain, we don't have a First Amendment. You do I'm very jealous of the First Amendment, I have to say. I mean, uh, it's something that Britain can certainly do with. But, of course, we live in in an era now where all of the attacks on free speech are similar. Right. Right. Uh, There are certain correct opinions and wrong opinions, Uh, putting these in quotations, obviously. But uh, the correct opinions um, uh, get boosted and encouraged by a lot of the mainstream media, not all of it, but a lot of it, certainly by the tech companies and by what we used to call sort of received opinion. Uh, And then there are wrong opinions. Uh now um th- the wrong opinions happen to be something i've spent my life wading in. Um and uh um very happily so by the way i don't feel at all beleaguered or anything myself. Uh but there are very tricky issues in our day which get as i say people who don't have the fortune of having a voice and being um being a- able to write and say what they think getting them canceled um getting their lives turned upside down getting their their their, their careers ended. And this can happen to very famous people. It can happen to people who've got no profile at all. And then, of course, we have the thing of muting, of, of you know, you, that we are a platform, a social media platform that believes in free expression. Oh, but as long as it's the correct expression. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the correct expression, then you're not on the platform, and then you don't have a voice. And they say, well, you can go to another platform, but then there aren't other platforms, yeah. or they bring down the other platforms. And that's a big problem in our time, because nothing that I say and write about is fringe. You know, Um, I think that, for instance, all the issues I write about in the manners of crowds, which are the taboo issues of the time, everything to do with race, everything to do with sexuality, everything to do with sex. uh, uh, These are issues which um, I hold mainstream views on. But they are views that most people in the public sphere cannot voice. Um, You know, very obvious ones that I I say in the manners of crowds, you know. it's not we're told things in our day that are not straightforward and we're told that they are straightforward and we're told that we have to say only one set of things and I say no uh, uh, we won't be made to, to say and think only one set of things but unfortunately uh, as I say many people particularly in America but in, 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 all across the developed world are being cowed into saying only one set of things this worries me and bothers me enormously And uh, uh, I very much hope that that changes. But it's, it's going to be an uphill battle for some while. You are here in
0: Phoenix because you are giving a lecture tomorrow night. Friday, uh, January 29th at ASU through their Political History and Leadership Program in concert with National Review Institute. This is Don Critchlow's program. Feel free to say something about your lecture tomorrow night if people want to go, if there's Um, still tickets. I'd be
1: thrilled anyone listening wants to join us. Yeah, I'll be speaking tomorrow night at ASU at uh, 6 p.m. In the Neeb Hall, and uh, that you if you want to find out more, you can visit uh, nrinstitute.org/asu. That's Correct. nrinstitute.org/asu. And uh, I will be I um, will be speaking and then taking questions uh, from the audience. And uh, I'm, I'm very keen to hear from people because I always think that. One of the great things now that we can have live events again, yeah, now we can actually gather yeah. <laughs> and meet other human yeah. beings in the flesh, in large numbers, is is that we can hear from each other again. Good, you know, um, I think that one of the great sadnesses of the, of the sort of corona era is that we've all lost our antennae to yeah. a certain extent. Um, here we get the opportunity to get it back and uh, to exchange ideas, and to, um, I'm, so I'm very keen to hear from people here as well because uh, I'm I'm you know now a resident in the United States that I. Uh, you know, I learn something every day, every hour, and every meeting, every question I get, yeah. an answer to, or every question I ask somebody else, I I uh, always ask of me. I always learn something because this country at the moment is going through something really, really significant.
0: And it's, a, it's forced us into a lot of self-education. COVID did. We, a lot of us learned, had to, had to relearn. Remember after 9-11, we'll go to a break, we'll come back. Remember right after 9-11, uh, Americans wanted to buy books on Islam and learn I mean, learn about things that they didn't feel they knew enough about. That's happened with COVID. We, we are a very, very uh, uh, what's the word I want, autodidactic in some sense society after the crisis. Uh, our, our, our idea in the books you write is to kind of help Pave the way so that we can um, weather any storm or, comes our way. We will be right back with Douglas Murray. He is the author of several books. His most recent, "The Madness of Crowds: Gender, Race, and Identity." He'll be speaking at ASU tomorrow night in partnership with the National Review Institute and their Political History and Leadership Program. You can get tickets. Uh, you can get tickets at uh, the National Review Institute's website. And uh, if you have questions for Douglas Murray, you can give us a call at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's a delight and privilege to have Douglas Murray here in studio with us. He'll be speaking at ASU tomorrow night in uh, in conjunction with the sponsorship from the National Review Institute, you said something. If I might uh, pursue um, in the previous segment about how it's oddly the mainstream views or the common views. Correct me, however, you want if I if I misstate it. That seem to be the most attacked or the most under threat of cancellation, cancel culture, shadow banning, censorship. And it's interesting in a sense that this has been with us. Human beings in the West for some times, the revolt of the crowds, the revolt of the masses, the revolt of the elite. But why is that the case? Is this a, 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 an authoritarian personality disorder by the elites? They can't – this this is the only way they can gain control is by silencing the mainstream um, view?
1: No, w- I think – What is this? I think it's a cost-benefit analysis. OK. Um, I'm interested in truth. I, I think that it's, it's what drives me is um, I'm interested in whether things are true or not. Um, now, I spend a lot of my life writing about politics. I write a lot, spend a lot of it writing about culture and other things as well. But most of it's what I've spent writing about politics. turns out that lo- using the lens of truth to analyze politics is not always useful because most or a lot of politicians are not actually driven by truth. They don't look at problems and say, now, what is, what is the truth of this problem? And how, what, is, what would be the way to solve it? A whole pile of other things come in. Now, here's where this, this relates to the cancellation point. Um, in our era, uh, all of the things that are most obvious, most uh, um, sensible, most mainstream, have been effectively delegitimized. And it has become the case that people pay a price for saying things that are true. Now, I would say, in that situation, it doesn't mean you stop telling the truth. But for many people, particularly politicians, I would say, you look at the risk reward ratio and it's not worth it. So let me give you a very obvious example that's going on in the publishing world and a bit wider a uh, fellow countryman countrywoman of mine, JK Rowling, probably the most successful author on the planet, probably the most successful author since God, uh outsells absolutely everybody. Uh, uh, is constantly at uh, the brink of cancellation these days because she said that she says there is such a thing as a woman, um, and I can't change my mind on this. I'm, uh, she's very polite. She's never dogmatic. She's not afraid. She's not going to buy into a she's lie. She's just not going to buy she's into gonna, it. She's not going to. Yeah. And she gets this just slurry of abuse all the time. Now, I, I happen to think that that abuse is particularly horribly aimed at women. I'm very struck by that. Interesting. as uh, a particularly anti-female movement going on at the moment within, the, for instance, the trans movement. But the the point here is, if you're a politician in any of our countries and you're asked in public about this, on the one hand, you see that very prominent figures seem to have their lives turned upside down and inside out if they say the thing that is true, which is that... Without disrespecting anyone, you know, chromosomes exist, gametes exist, biology is what it is, and, you know, we can all be polite to each other, but we shouldn't lie. You can do that, but, but you pay a price. Whereas the lie, little lie that might be at the beginning, for instance, to talk about gender instead of sex, becomes uh, the easier thing to do, the thing that gets you an easier life. By the way, this is brilliant by the radical activists. This is such a good spot. Um, because effectively, they recognise that we human beings are very often, not in, not inevitably, but very often, herd animals. We like to travel in a pack. Some of us aren't that bothered about packs. Some of us are merrily able to go our own way, but most like to be in a pack. So, the best way that you change the movement of a pack is, as anyone who's ever uh, um, tried to drive a herd of sheep anywhere knows is to get something to nip at the edges of the pack. So in um, sheepdog terms, the sheepdog nips at the ankles of the sheeps on the edge of the pack in order that the pack moves in the direction that that the dog, this owner, wants them to move in. We're the same. All you need to do is to bite at the ankles of the people on the outside of the herd and the herd moves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Take another example. In nature, um, zebras. If you, if you paint a, a, a zebra, uh, if you were cruel enough to decide to paint a zebra with some other color paint, that zebra will be dead very soon because the ability to blend in with the rest of the pack will have been taken away and a predator will take it out. Now, that is what the radical activists are trying to do with people in America today as we speak. They are trying to paint the cross, of the, uh, the, 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 the defining thing. Uh, to tar, as we might have said in a previous era, to tar the people on the edges of the pack in order to make the pack move in the way that the radical activists want. It's a very effective strategy. I would do it if I were them, if I were driven by, um, by the same things. I just think it is a wicked thing to do. But it is a highly effective strategy. Is there a similar or
0: uh, an inver- a converse strategy that conservatives can learn from in how to answer the left – I mean, as you're talking about the sheep and the sheep dog, I <laughs> remember Nietzsche doing camels and lions. <laughs> you know, be a lion, not a camel. I'm wondering, should I advise my listeners to be sheep dogs rather than sheep?
1: Um, I, uh, not in the way you're
0: describing it exactly, mm, though, right?
1: Well, the metaphor might break down here, but I do just urge people to stand up and to just in their own lives, in our own lives, not to go along with lies. And it's a. It's it's to my mind one of the most crucial things in, in in anyone's life that we just we just try not to go along with lies. Yeah, uh-huh. um, you know, there there are pleasantries you can go along with. I mean, you know, we might all do that in an average day. We might say that somebody looks nice and they don't, but we don't say to them, "You don't look nice." We just we, we're polite. We're, that's, that's the nature of us, and so there so we should be. So there is courtesy, and courtesy is a very important thing in civilization, but when the courtesy ends up becoming you have to tell the lie then you have to stop and i would say that there are many things in america at the moment that are that people are being told to say which are lies um, you you mentioned earlier that uh, you know mentioned that i'd written on immigration yeah. a lot uh, immigration is such a tricky one to approach because the whole terrain is filled with lies Now, let me give you one that that i've i've said often and written a book length about but Uh, leftists and the sort of open borders and and even the sort of pro-immigration groups sort of pretend that the third world can move to the first world but you and I know and everyone listening knows they can't no way Uh, if the third world moved to the first world, the first world would become the third world It would become completely indiscernible from each other, so we know this but our politicians can't say any of that, very few of them can um, uh, So we have to sort of go along with a lie when leftists say, you know, we should, for instance, be the home of whoever in the world is fleeing oppression. But that's a lovely idea. And it's also a lie because we can't be.
0: Let me take this break and pick up with you on that when we come back. This is a fascinating thought to me because we go through this in many this debate in very many – in a great many ways, not the least of which is our education system here in America – and I always think of, you know, you can come here from another country and you can become Ion Hersi Ali mm. and love this country and leave Somalia behind. Or mm-hmm. you beca- can become Ilan Omar. Yes. And which is more the point you're making on your th- Can we pick up on that when we come yeah, back? I'd about? love to. Douglas Murray is our guest. His most recent book, The Madness of Crowns, The Strange Death of Europe, his previous And I'm going to ask him some questions about the intersection of those two as well when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Douglas Murray is uh, my guest in the house. He'll be speaking at ASU tomorrow night in concert with the National Review Institute. You can get tickets at the National Review Institute website. Uh, Author of um, The Madness of Crowds, but before that, The Strange Death of Europe. And this will serve as the predicate for the question I teased in the last segment. But in The Death of Europe, you talk about the existential tiredness uh, at the root of the West's um, inability to what? Defend itself, I suppose. How does that tiredness relate to the topics that you bring up, explore in the madness of crowds? Is there an intersection there?
1: Um, there are several. I mean w- w- the most obvious is the um, my desire to identify taboos and then jump all over them. Um, but uh, yes, there is. I, I-, I believe that um, the, uh, in The Strange Death of Europe, I explain how immigration – ends up being this sort of enervating, that is, tiring thing, which the, the nature of the society changes. People start to think, well, there's not much we can do about it. And uh, now, of course, you can assimilate people. You can become you can be a very successful assimilationist society. And historically, America has been. But there's some kind of level at which you can't be. And the society starts to recognize that. And so you get this sort of um, uh, atomization where people decide, well, the whole thing's going to go down, but I'll look after myself, you know and much more. Now, it's also my view that uh, when societies are going through what I describe in The Strange Death of Europe, uh, they end up obsessing about odd other things. Uh, I owe a point to the um, the writer Camille Paglia uh, that I've, I've made often, and various people have attributed to me, but I've, I've credited, I do credit her with this insight that, for instance, the obsession with gender fluidity of... Um, the obsession with asexuality um, is something that happens when empires are going down. Uh, Now, as I say, Paglia uh, identifies this and says this is what you see in late Greek, late Mm -hmm. Roman sculpture, for instance. You lose the sort of definition of the very male sculptures and the very uh, female sculptures, and you get these sort of androgynous sort of figures. Um, There becomes an obsession with uh, sex changing, even. We get Mm -hmm. it in Ovid uh it, it, when more recently, I think you could say weimar Germany, okay, you get something similar you okay. read in the novels of Chris Frischer and others who were in Berlin in the thirties, this sort of obsession with sort of gender fluidity starts you see, to on carousel about. <laughs> <It's absolutely
0: laughs> i think I think yeah and I think that,
1: i think that uh, um this is a this is a sign of what people do when other things are falling apart. Um, I think that is one of the reasons why we've got this obsession with what is a minority of a minority Uh issue. There is no reason why the trans thing should be as prominent as it is.
0: Yeah, the whole world being turned upside down for a very, very, very small, small thing that two years ago was on nobody's yeah. radar
1: screen. And which most of us, you know, when I was growing up, we sort of knew about, right. but it was extremely unusual. Yeah. And, uh, and you didn't need to, for instance, pretend that women didn't exist. But by the way,
0: on that, focusing on the um – I don't know if you want to call it the frivolous, or, or if you focus on the small things, the smaller things, or the less uh, the the less critical and crucial things. Is this what what we use to distract us? Does it lead to this kind of existential tiredness? Your your colleague, uh, you may or may not know. I I don't know her that well. Uh, Melanie Phillips had this phrase of preemptive cultural surrender. Yes. Um, and and I'm wondering if this is the beginning of every society good or bad's downfall. Some could say the Soviet Union fell because people stopped believing in the system. Mm-hmm. This is my worry here. Mm. Regardless of the character of the regime, have we stopped and I wonder if that's happening yeah, that's, in Great Britain
1: that's a very, That's a very um, pertinent insight that that yes, um, by the end of the Soviet Union, even the people who ran it didn't believe in it. <laughs> <Right>? uh, <laughs> I mean, we know that now. I mean they they tried to make themselves rich and they drank as much as they could drink. Uh, They didn't believe a word of it by the end. Uh, There were no true believers left. Um, That can happen in any society. Do we Um, have that here? I think you've got a very strong uh, leaning towards that. Are you you worried about it? I'm very worried about it. Okay. And I'll tell you why, by the way, because I've seen a lot of this in um, Europe. I've um, written about a lot of this in Europe. And I see some of the same traits here. But here's an additional problem, is that here in America, and this is, Partly what my talk tomorrow night at ASU is going to be about. Here in America, you have unique problems. You have bad ideas. You are now exporting around the rest of the world. I know. Look at the whole race obsession. Right. Like the rest of the world doesn't want to spend the 21st century talking about race. It doesn't find it that interesting. Can, Only America Can we, America can we do that? Obsessed. Can we talk
0: about why when we come back? Yeah, uh, yeah. They've made me obsessed about it. When the effort was to get over the obsession, I'm Seth Leibson. He is uh, Douglas Murray. His books, The Strange Death of Europe and The Madness of Crowds, The Madness of Crowds, the most recent, he'll be speaking at ASU tomorrow night. You can get tickets at National Review Institute's website. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Douglas Murray is our guest, author of The Madness of Crowds, The Strange Death of Europe. you were making an interesting point. You always do. I didn't mean it in isolation, but one of the interesting points, I guess that's the way to put it. One of the interesting points you were making, Douglas, on the way to the break was the obsession with race in America and how it seems to be um, actually one of our new chief exports, Mm. if you will. I have thought for the past uh, decade or so, certainly the last few years more so, we've become the kind of country we used to send aid to. But we're sending them our problems now, problems they don't have or problems they don't
1: want. Talk to me about the race issue here versus – Everywhere. Else. Yeah. Well, um, I'm very concerned about that. Um, it's a feature of the matters of crowds was trying to warn people not to go down this route. Um, as you say, we, most of us have spent our lives being told that race would become less and less of an issue. And that's what we all hoped. Whatever color skin, you know, we all hoped that uh, it just would. It's, it's not a very interesting issue. I mean, it's not very interesting in its own lights. And to,
0: by the way, I just have to interject this point that I think is forgotten. I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to interject. No one wanted that more than racial minorities including yeah, Jewish Americans and
1: Catholic Americans. Of course. Uh, it, Racial and religious minorities. Exactly. Okay. To sort of make it a non-issue had yeah. become the, the guiding point. Yeah. And then very, very bad actors decided to turn that the other way around yeah. and make us all have to spend the 21st century obsessively talking about race to the extent that, you know, whether it's a nomination of a Supreme Court justice, right. the discussions about race, right. um, people's ability to enter certain uh, Educational institutions, race, people's ability to get treated in yep. certain states, yep. race. Yep. These are very, very bad signs.
0: And really where it all started, school again, school. college.
1: And it's a lot
0: of this is coming with – this notion of resegregation yeah. as if race matters. Why, should, why Why? did it become a thing in America that race matters? Is this yeah. a Marxist or a neo-Marxist? It's a, it's a post-Marxist,
1: yeah. neo-Marxist thing, absolutely. It starts in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, I actually trace it in the book I just finished, which comes out in April. Um, yeah, it, it, the, the, what we now call critical race yep. theory is this thing that started in the 70s. that said actually um, everything is about race. You know, the Marxists used to pretend that everything was about class. Right. Now they said everything is about race. Right and uh, they exported this idea around the world. They exported it to countries like Great Britain, for instance, and uh, I made the observation in uh, The Madison of Crowds that when the Black Lives Matter movement started in the tw- early 2010s, uh, there were Black Lives Matter protests around the rest of the world as well, including in Great Britain, where an unarmed constabulary uh, accompanied marchers with their hands in the air saying, hands up, don't shoot. Right. And the police couldn't have shot them if they'd wanted to because they don't carry guns. Right. It just doesn't work. Oh. You're trying to transpose a, a, a vision of America, which is wrong, I think, uh, uh, onto other societies. Let me give you one other quick example that... It makes me uh, f- just furious uh, uh, when people were doing all the sort of BLM, taking the knee, all this sort of thing, as if it was a very ancient and well-known gesture um, in recent years. The Indian cricket team uh, last year took the knee before a match. Now, to hell with these people. <laughs> India is one of the most racist societies on earth. Mm-hmm. They actually, invented the caste system. They actually yeah. have a caste system. Yeah, right. By the way, the British didn't impose the caste system. The caste system predated the okay. British Good. in India. The caste system is entirely reliant on what particular bit of the color chart you happen to be on. And if you're the darkest, you are regarded in India as the lowest and indeed the untouchables. Why should America in the twenty-first century be being lectured to by other countries on this issue? Let me give you another very quick example because we've got a real problem now in America, haven't we? Which is that there are always going to be problems in America. But the question is, uh, are other people who identify them doing so because they want to do us uh, a favor and help us or to do us harm? Right. Now, earlier, uh, last year now, uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the American ambassador to the United Nations, spoke of the United Nations and spoke about the terrible racism of American society. Towards the end of her speech... She had the grace to acknowledge that also other things are happening in the rest of the world. For instance, the Uyghurs in China, about a million of them currently in concentration camps. She identified the fact that Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, formerly Burma, are also similarly persecuted. What was the first thing that happened? That after her speech, the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations got up on the floor of the United Nations and said... The ambassador and the representative from the United States has no right to lecture us because she has done something unprecedented in the history of this house and has come here and confessed to the racism of her own country. So she has no right to tell us in China what to do. This is the problem.
0: Yes, this is, and it is international, and it was foisted on the international scene, at least by my reading of history, really dating back to the days of the speeches of Khrushchev, who wanted to make the entire third world revolutionary terrorist justification based on just those things, those that triad. It was colonialism, it was imperialism, and it was racism, Yes, right? And this is how you got the justification for terrorism or, quite frankly— the justification
1: for yeah. BLM and you know these were all I, Marxist movements I always say that I'm very willing to speak about all these things indeed I sure. do uh, sure. all the time sure but I'm not willing to speak about them in isolation right. so for instance if you say I'd like a conversation about slavery I say, absolutely I'm very happy to talk about slavery and um, uh, and I only want to talk about the transatlantic slave trade why why? When every single civilization in human history had uh, engaged in the barbarity of trading in human lives, why are you only interested in one form of that? Well, you you might say because we're America and it was was in our past and the other things aren't in our past. You go, yes, but to understand yourself, you have to understand the rest of the world. It isn't good enough to say our founding fathers happened to be engaged in slavery – which some of them were, it's not enough to say that if you don't know that everybody else on God's earth at the time was engaged in the same foul pursuit. Now, if you say colonialism... I'm perfectly happy to talk about colonialism. Some people might say, well, you're British. You might be trying to avoid the subject. I've never tried to avoid the subject, but I tell you what, if people want to talk about British colonialism, I want to talk about Turkish colonialism too. Turkey had one of the biggest and longest-running empires in human history. I don't hear calls for reparations. I don't hear howls at the United Nations about the Ottoman Empire. So, again... Let's get our own pasts in perspective and know what the rest of the world was doing. Otherwise, we are going to be judging ourselves and be judged by others on totally unfair standards.
0: Don't you find it somewhat um, something – I'm not sure what the right word is. uh, Hypocritical isn't good enough – that the people who want to talk about slavery that ended here 160 years ago are the last people who want to talk about slavery in the concentration camps that are going on right now under our nose before our eyes and countries. Like China.
1: Well, those people have got themselves into a self-imposed uh, problem. Uh, I mean, I've met slaves. Uh, I've, I've met people who, who've lived as slaves. I've seen their tears in Africa. I've traveled to places where I've, I've met these people. I mean, it's a horrible thing to reflect on. Now, what do you do about that if you're a radical uh, actress who wants to talk about American slavery two centuries ago? What you do is say you don't really have a right to say anything about it because you did it too. In other words, it stops you acting today to right wrongs ah. because you're pretending that you can right wrongs of the past. But you can't right the wrongs of the past because the wrong was not done by you and it wasn't done to you. It's an interesting you know, And unfortunately, in America in particular at the moment, we have some people who, as Nietzsche once described, want to rip at wounds that have closed and then say that they've been harmed. Right, right. Uh, Now, it's very difficult because there are all these sensitivities we understandably have about the past. But we have to identify people who are ripping at the wounds and then saying they've been hurt. We have to call these people out, identify them who they are. I don't think it's hard to identify them. I think they're very obvious hucksters in America. They're doing well. They're getting rich off this. They're benefiting themselves. But they are going to destroy America if they continue doing this unchallenged.
0: Colin Kaepernick makes about $20 million a year or more while claiming victimhood while the money comes from people who are in concentration camps in modern-day slavery as he rails against slavery that we ended in part of this country over a century and a half ago to wit. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Douglas Murray. We will be back with some concluding thoughts. I'm going to ask you about how we renew the West and if the renewal of the West might... Uh, fix address or obviate some of the losses that we've experienced i'm seth and he's douglas murray we'll be right back welcome back to the seth leapson show douglas murray will be speaking at asu tomorrow night if you're interested in tickets you can go to the national review institute's website they are doing it in con- conjunction with asu Final question kind of tying some of this together and next time you're in town, please come for three hours. If you you can stand it, I'd love to have you. Is there a sense – what do you think a renewed sense um, or or recuperation of of Western civilization might help address, redress some of the losses uh, we've seen maybe that come from or stem from the loss of Christianity or anything else quite really?
1: Um, Christianity is one of the most important um, wells from which Western civilization draws. Um, I don't think you can you have Western civilization without it. Um, and uh, as for where you would revive it from, I'm afraid uh, this is up to America. It's highly unlikely that any kind of Western revival is going to start from Denmark or Norway. Uh, I'd like to think it could happen from Britain, but I think the odds are less the most likely country for it to happen from is America. America is a country where everything stands and falls on. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I now spend my time here. I think this is where it is all at. If America gets the 21st century wrong, the whole world goes wrong. If you get it right, the whole world can go in a better direction. We don't get to utopia because we never do. But you can go in a better direction. But as I say, if America gets this wrong, if you start obsessing over the wrong things... If you start deciding that, you know, you're going to just keep picking at your wounds, you're not going to get yourself in a proper perspective, you're not going to understand the rest of the world, and you're going to accept attacks on the fundamentals of your society without going against that, without countering that, without fighting back against that. If you just allow that to happen, then everything goes wrong. But you have a great opportunity here. I mean, America is, always was, a revolutionary society. It started off like that started off with extraordinary men and women making decisions and reviving and revitalizing a whole set of traditions, including the tr- Christian tradition. And, of course, most importantly, the democratic tradition in the real sense, the tradition of democracy. That's That started again when America started. So you've done it before. You can do it again. We will leave on that high
0: and optimistic note. I'll do my best to close this show similar to the way Mr. Buckley might have done firing line. Thank you, Douglas Murray. Thank you you national review institute thank you arizona state university's political history and leadership program and of course thank you stephanie cates who represents national review more than ably here in the great valley of the sun enjoy your stay here enjoy your talk next time come for three hours
1: it's a great pleasure you bet thank you
0: i'm seth leapson we'll be right back